Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 564th episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia, just like all 563 other episodes. I'm Mike Allen. I'm a family doctor. I am an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta, and I'm the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada, and that's where I found our next guest. Hi, everybody. I'm Samantha Moe. I am a clinical pharmacist by training, but I now work at the College of Family Physicians of Canada as a clinical evidence expert. And Sam has been on the podcast a number of times before and always does an incredibly good job, but no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So uh, the topic that we're going to talk about, and I don't know if we've actually, we've, we may have touched on this topic a little bit, but uh, we're going to be talking about the non-hormonal drugs that we use for menopausal symptoms. And uh, I don't think we've done, we, I, I know we haven't done this particular topic, but I think it's an important one because the, there's a... We'll talk about it a little bit. Definitely, there's hormones that you can use, and they work very well. And we can talk about that maybe a little bit. But there's all, not everyone can take those, and so it's really important to look at what the best available evidence is. And that's why probably you guys looked at it. Yeah, absolutely. For women who want to avoid hormones for whatever reason, yeah. or if they have a contraindication to taking hormone therapy, like a history of breast cancer or what have you, then these kind of medications may be considered as you know as part of your toolkit. Yeah. So why don't you just uh, work us through all the evidence? That's what we'll do. And, and Mike and I are just here for our charm. <laughs> yeah. Sounds charm. like a plan. <laughs> all right. So we looked at um, the available evidence for several classes of medications. We looked at SSRIs, we looked at SNRIs, and we looked at gabapentin. And those had around five or six meta-analyses each. And we also looked at clonidine, which had one meta-analysis um, and four randomized controlled trials. And we also looked at some randomized controlled trials for the other classes because sometimes we couldn't quite find the outcome that we wanted in the systematic reviews. So that's what we'll talk about today. And the outcome that we found most commonly in all of these systematic reviews was the number of hot flashes per day. And so that's the first one we'll go through. So SSRIs, gabapentin, desvenlafaxine, Across most of these randomized controlled trials, their baseline number of hot flashes per day was anywhere from 9 to 11. And so that's our starting point. And what we found is that for all these classes or all these drugs, the mean difference was one to few, uh, sorry, one to two fewer hot flashes over placebo at 4 to 12 weeks. So for example, <clears throat> if you, a patient started at a baseline of 10 hot flashes um, and they took desmenlafaxine, the number of hot flashes would be reduced to three to four. And if they took placebo, it was reduced by about five to six. So that's what we saw for those classes. And I think those are the most common ones we think about when we think about non-hormonals. Yeah. And it's quite something is that, it, and it's not necessarily the placebo effect that's causing that's reducing the symptoms. It's just the natural fluctuation in there. And it may have been that they decided to go in a study because they were at their worst and they thought, well, at least let me try this and so on. So you're getting, you know, a more of a change in, on placebo than you are from going, adding a drug to placebo. Mm -hmm. That's common though, right? Oh, like yeah, you see least, that, yeah. It's like any, that a lot yeah. um, with, with um, different interventions. The biggest effect um, we see with many like ketamine and um, antidepressants mm -hmm. and stuff, the largest effect comes in the placebo group yeah. and the added effect from the intervention is, you know, maybe half of that or something. Yeah. If you look at 
cannabinoids about uh, the, the pain reduction in the placebo groups about one and then in the uh, out of, on, on a VAS scale of 10, it goes about one down with placebo and about half a point down with cannabinoids on top of that. So yeah. th th that is not, yeah. you know, it's very... And these are anti the antidepressants, and it's exactly what we see with depression, right? Mike, you get about a 40% of people uh, yeah. on the placebo group have their depression lessened or or gone. Yeah, hit hit a certain target, yeah. and then 50% in the treatment group, so yeah, it's only 10% so difference. Yeah. yeah, very similar. So the next drug we looked at was actually oxybutynin. And I don't know if this surprises you, but it surprised me because we think of oxybutynin as a drug for like overactive bladder, really. Mm -hmm. But because of its anticholinergic properties, it sometimes has been used for hyperhidrosis. And so I guess just looking back, there has been some anecdotal data to suggest that maybe it could be used for um, vasomotor symptoms related to menopause. Um, so this particular trial was 148 patients and what it showed. And so first of all, to say like they use oxybutynin in 15 milligrams per day. And so that's a pretty high dose, actually. So you'll recall that the usual dose of oxybutynin is like 2.5 to 5 milligrams BID. So 15 milligrams is definitely like on the higher side. And what they saw was that there were four fewer hot flashes um, over placebo at 12 weeks. So it looks like it works quite well. Mm -hmm. Um in this tool, we didn't have a lot of space to talk about side effects. And so it's not captured in the tool, but there were quite a few side effects from um, that particular RCT with oxybutynin. So any side effect was a number needed to harm a four and patients were experiencing like dry mouth, dyspepsia, diarrhea, UTI. So quite a few side effects, um, even though it worked quite yeah, well. And, and, and all the ones that you'd expect from, from taking yeah. oxybutynin. Yeah, and especially when you double, triple, quadruple the doses. and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the next drug is clonidine. So remember, it's an alpha agonist. And with that particular one, there was one systematic review, as I mentioned. There, they reported one fewer hot flash over placebo. However, some of these trials had breast cancer patients. And breast cancer patients are a little bit different because they tend to be on tamoxifen or the aromatase inhibitors. And those drugs can cause hot flashes. So it kind of muddies up the picture a little bit. So when you take the breast cancer patients out of these analyses, then clonidine doesn't seem to work for patients who do not have a history of breast cancer. Right. So that's the that's the number of hot flashes that are reduced, but there's another endpoint that, that some of these studies looked at, right? Mm -hmm. So we looked at um, a responder analysis. So how many patients are the proportion of patients with at least a 50% reduction in the number of hot flashes? And most of these were over 12 weeks. And there was quite a few drugs that showed a benefit. So gabapentin, there was one RCT of 600 patients. 73% of those patients had a 50% reduction in hot flashes versus 60% on placebo. That translates to a number needed to treat of eight. Desvenlafaxine, um, a randomized control trial of 567 patients. Here, 68 to 75%. Uh, on the drug had that responder versus 48% on placebo with a number needed to treat of four to five. SSRIs also had some benefits. So paroxetine and escitalopram have been studied. They showed a benefit um, 48 to 55% um, achieved that responder versus 36% for, on placebo. And that's a number needed to treat of six to nine. So they're kind of all in the same ballpark. Um, there was a couple of other SSRIs that were studied. So fluoxetine, citalopram. This was in a study, a single RCT of 150 patients, so a bit smaller. And there was no difference versus placebo. 
and maybe it's a power issue. Like maybe this trial just wasn't big enough to show that, like, but mm -hmm. other SSRIs have shown um, a benefit. And this is tricky. And I, I would imagine it's very similar to what we've seen with depression. It, there is a pretty impressive likelihood that there's a, a publication bias here. You know, oh, for sure. You know, it, yeah. we, we don't see, you know, very large cardiovascular trials not being reported. I mean, they almost all reported, but this is an area where it could easily be a problem. Yeah, because they're small studies. And mm -hmm. this is a common thing when you're seeing small studies. If you look at funnel plots, if you want to be nerdy enough, the yeah. small studies are the ones that are often missing. That's how publication bias uh, rears its head. The small studies that were negative are, aren't published, and that's this would be at risk for that. These are, and the, because some of these products are now, um, uh, generic. they're, generic. they're genericized. Yeah. That they're, what, what happens is that their publicly funded studies run on a lot smaller budget and there's less incentive if you get a negative result, et cetera. Yeah, no, exactly. Now in the, we talked about some of the side effects from the oxybutynin. What about, did they report the side effects with the, the SSRIs at all or? Poorly reported in these trials, like we didn't find a lot. So I think it's consistent with what you would see with oh, for sure, like other yeah, type just wondered, of trials, yeah. but yeah, not well reported in terms of adverse effects. Because I think you know that, especially when it comes to some of the you know the SSRIs, I think it's really important to remember that, that and it depends where you go look for this data. But anywhere from about once people are on it, about fifty percent of people do go through a bit of withdrawal if you try to stop it. So there's that that potential issue, and and especially long term, about twenty five percent of people will have a even quite a difficult time getting off these medications. So you know, there's no uh, th these are not these are not benign agents, but they they certainly seem to have an effect. But we have to always remember that they do have the potential for side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. I remember reading a study a long time ago on this, and um, I think you'll get into the doses in a minute. So let's wait for that and go through the other outcomes, Sam, because uh, there are some there are some other outcomes um, mm -hmm. in this study that I think are uh, they're they're helpful for us to reflect on, and you know, it it provides consistency within the results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of our peer reviewers said, oh, but what, how do like women just feel overall? Like the number of hot flashes doesn't matter so much to me. Like how do they just feel? Is there better quality of life? Mm -hmm. So one of the outcomes we found was just a patient's global assessment of how they were doing and looking at the number of women who said they were very much improved or much improved. And they, you know, over 12 weeks of therapy, um, these outcomes were reported. And gabapentin, was a trial, there was a trial that reported this, 58% said they were very much or much improved versus 44% on placebo. That's the number needed to treat of eight. And then for oxybutynin again, so 73% um, on oxybutynin versus 26% on placebo, that's a number needed to treat of two. So they are reporting that they feel better, which is great. And then quality of life, so was reported in some trials, but not reported frequently. And it's almost always for SSRIs. So versus placebo, um, the SSRIs like citalopram, fluoxetine, or sertraline, those trials didn't show any um, difference in terms of quality of life. As citalopram um, did show a statistical difference, but it was not clinically um, meaningful. It was measured on a scale, so it's, it's kind of hard to say if anybody would really perceive an improvement in their quality of life. So, so that, that's, and that's pretty much all the data we have, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, it, 
like with anything else, there's enough studies to say, yeah, these probably have an effect and we've given you all of the numbers, but there's also uh, a number of limitations that we should bring up. Yeah, there's a bunch of limitations. Um, several listed in the tool, like things like event rates are not well reported. They use stats that are sometimes difficult to interpret clinically. Sometimes they included breast cancer patients. Sometimes they were industry funded. And then a couple more limitations I'm just going to mention, like some people had asked us, well, how about symptom severity and does that get improved with these drugs? And it's actually really difficult to measure. There's like a, a, a whole bunch of different scales and it's very difficult to interpret them. So we couldn't really give solid recommendations around whether or, you know, say with the confidence whether it improves the symptom severity. And then some people asked us about sleep data. And they measured sleep in so many different ways. It was so tricky. There's like scales or how long did you stay asleep or how many nighttime awakenings did you have? And it was kind of part and parcel here and there. So it was really hard to like to make firm conclusions about its benefit on sleep. So that's too bad because sleep is definitely consideration for women experiencing menopause. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And and those those sort of things, are. Very, I, I've always, unless you have some sort of a sleep monitoring place that you go to i don't know how people go when did you fall asleep i mean it's it's you know it's such yeah. a trick it's such a it is yeah tricky. it's awesome those questions because they're also often accompanied with the best advice is don't look at the clock now when did you fall asleep yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it was sometime on tuesday night <laughs> so yeah, yeah it, it, it is it is tricky so that 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 is really all the evidence that's around sort of the non-hormonal treatment. So now we have to sort of put it into context because I don't think anyone would disagree or well, actually that's not true. Someone in, in the world would just because they're trying to be difficult. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, the first line from uh, menopausal symptoms is if you, if you want to take some medication is, is hormone therapy. Yeah. I mean, that's what the guidelines recommend. Mm -hmm. So we looked at like the North American Menopause Society guidelines from 2023, just kind of one of the more recent ones. And they recommend hormone therapy as first line. Mm -hmm. We used to call it, incidentally, as an aside, they used to call it HRT, but apparently HRT, that term is no longer um, used. They're supposed to use the term yeah. menopausal hormone therapy. Yeah, it's, I think it's the word replacement. Is mm -hmm. not probably, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And then from these guidelines, like second line is the SSRIs, mm -hmm. SNRIs, or gabapentin. Yeah. But we certainly, at least, and I, I know you guys didn't look at the data there. I've, again, seen some some of the figures, and I, I don't remember the placebo response, but, uh, you know, you'd see about 80% of women who take hormone, uh, I'm going to use hormone replacement, hormone therapy, mm -hmm. uh, get uh, a important relief in their symptoms like greater than 50 percent and, and there's no doubt that that is very is an effective treatment and the the, the only not the tricky part the the, the tricky part is, is trying to figure out what the right dose is because i remember looking at this stuff way back 20 years ago and there was was only a couple of studies where they did dose comparisons for hormone therapy and they shown quite quite nicely that you could easily cut the dose in half. You know, the old Premarin dose that was 0.625 milligrams a day. There was mm -hmm. a number of trials that quite clearly showed that you could cut the dose in half of that and get exactly the same benefit uh, for menopausal symptoms and way less hormone side effects. Now, I, I have not seen studies that go even lower than that, but I have to talk to people, and I'm sure you, both of you guys have talked to people where they use much lower doses uh, and they, but the only way they can figure out what it is, what the right dose is, is to keep backing off on it. Mm -hmm. 
Sam, how did the hormones therapies compare um, or how did they, you know, obviously you didn't do a deep dive into that, but how did they compare um, in the context of what we've seen with the other drugs? Well, we looked at it very briefly versus placebo and there is a Cochrane review around this, which is nice. Um, And mostly like, I guess just to set the context, like they mostly looked at estradiol one to two milligrams, which are, which is considered to be kind of on the higher end because you can start at 0.5, but anyway, so these are kind of moderate to higher doses. And so versus placebo, patients can experience 18 fewer hot flashes per week, um, which I guess would be maybe two to three per day. Um, So they seem to work quite well at kind of like the moderate to high doses. Um, And then we looked at how it compares to gabapentin. And so there was two randomized trials for this. Um, only about 170 patients, and that those two trials were kind of put together, made it analyzed together. Um, and what they found was that estradiol um, did result in one fewer hot flash per day versus 300 to 600 milligrams per day of gabapentin. That was over eight to 12 weeks. So a little bit, I don't know, I would, like it's not, you know, a remarkable difference, but it is a little bit more effective um, hormone therapy. That is. And then versus venlafaxine, there was one trial comparing a lower dose estradiol 0.5 milligrams with venlafaxine 75 milligrams per day. That was about 340 patients in that trial. And a lot of the efficacy outcomes for this trial were very similar between the two groups. So hot flash frequency, clinical improvement, how bothersome your symptoms were, all these outcomes were very similar. And it's very possible that that RCT was underpowered to compare the two agents because it was really meant to compare them versus placebo. So Mm -hmm. hard to draw conclusions about that. But the one notable thing was that patient satisfaction was higher with hormone therapy. So 70% versus 51% in the venlafaxine group. There was no stats there, but, you know, 20% difference in satisfaction looks, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's this is a uh, you know we we went through the um, the women's health initiative where we we kind of there was this shock and awe moment where oh my god we might be causing harm with what we thought so go way back to mm-hmm. when I was being when I was writing my exams and one of my oral exams was simulated orals was to convince a woman to go on on hormone and then it was called hormone replacement therapy. Um, to not just for her symptoms, but because it prevented cardiovascular disease in our in our minds, mm-hmm. and then it came out showing um, some negative outcomes, and we all scrambled. And then when that happened, I was presenting all the time on these kind of things: the the how you can what you can do instead of um, hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of gone full cycle because now we're back to if you talk to advocacy groups in menopause and guideline committees, et cetera, they're all pushing for just go straight to hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, don't don't fiddle around only for those who are, um, you know, don't, don't want the the um, because of breast cancer or whatever. They don't want the hormone therapy, but it's 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 really top of the line now. So as we've come full circle. There's a lot of beliefs about that. We've covered that in other tools mm-hmm. for practice about is it matter with the timing, et cetera. Um, that's not clear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting how things go in medicine in waves and, and cycles. And this is, this is certainly one of them. 
And I remember reading one of the studies I read was was for gabapentin. And a lot of them were, as you said, kind of, you know, 600 milligrams, et cetera. This one was using, was either uh, 2,400 to 30 to like, uh, or 3,600 dose. And I used to say to people like, this one is slightly more successful than the other ones with gabapentin. But I think the majority of it was because people were so snowed (laughs) on that dose. So, yeah, but it, it, you know, I think you've done an awesome review of, and I, you know, there's a there's a, a high level of consistency here in the data showing a reduction in the number of hot flashes, mm-hmm. the the percent who attain a certain clinical endpoint, patients just summarizing, you know, do you feel better or not? Like that, all of that is quite reassuring that these these are effective, not as effective as as hormones per se, but still, they have these effect. are. Effective. Yeah, 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 and I think it's important. That even going back to that women's health initiative, when you, when you add it up, because there was no doubt that uh, uh, the cardiovascular stuff was a bit of a wash. If, if anything, it might have even been worse uh, mm-hmm. with, with hormone replacement. But when you put everything together, long term, uh, on people who were on hormone therapy, it was about a one percent absolute increase in bad outcomes. If you add everything together, if you'd added the cancer and the, the cardiovascular yeah, exactly. and over the five fractures. Years, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was about a 1% absolute increase. So uh, that kind of tempered everyone because you went on average, you're not going to, you know, you got, well, you, you, you will do worse, which is one of the problems, but that was also with higher doses too. And so, yeah. And the other thing is, is it wasn't, it wasn't a study the study wasn't about symptom control. No, no, and no, not at all. We lost no. perspective of that. Like yeah. if it's, if we're talking about managing symptoms and for a lot of patients, they really, really suffer from hot mm-hmm. flashes and menopause. And even if the Women's Health Initiative is completely accurate at a 1% yeah. increase over five to 10 years, there's a lot of people who might choose that, right? Oh. There are people missing work, et cetera, and, and very disabled, right. not sleeping at night. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's a it's just an interesting kind of we 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 got very excited about that but lost track of the fact that it is still yeah. um, a helpful therapy yeah. for a lot of people no I, I agree and I think I, that's I think that's probably why it's still recommended first line because you know you can yeah, get, now it's come back thank goodness yeah and 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 maybe you only need it for a year or two or who yeah, knows right you know. and you don't you, we don't really know and and maybe you could use you know half or a quarter of the doses that were originally used so if that's the case then you then you probably would you know everything would be a wash for other sort of side effects and because it is important to remember that you know uh, well oxybutynin had a lot <laughs> a lot of side effects uh ssris <laughs> that, that, that surprises me that one and the dose yeah i mean <laughs> yeah. yeah having looked at the research around yeah bladder problems and and the elderly like are very terrified yeah. of those anticholinergic effects, and these guys seem to embrace them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I think now, you, you, why don't you just mention quickly the dosing? Now, those are the doses that are probably coming out of the sort of the guidelines and and so on. Yes. That's correct. So they're from that North American uh, Menopause Society guideline. So they recommend paroxetine 10 to 25 or 20 milligrams is that you have. Uh, Desvenlafaxine 100 to 150 milligrams. I'll just make a note here that oftentimes we talk about venlafaxine, but venlafaxine actually not studied as much in this mm-hmm. literature, but it is studied more in the breast cancer patients. So that's why we have desvenlafaxine here. And then the gabapentin, so 900 to 2400. So they do recommend up to that much. Yeah. Um, and those are big doses, and I think that's, you know, when you when you do a study, you got to study a dose that's hopefully going to have an effect. And so I think, whenever I've been asked about this, I always just say, well, 
Yeah, there's an effect. Now it's it's interesting because I and I don't maybe you guys know a little bit more what you found out. Certainly with hormone, uh, I keep saying hormone replacement, hormone therapy, you can actually see an effect within a week or even shorter some in some people. I don't know if that you probably these studies weren't designed to look at whether there was an effect at one or two weeks. It was that they're all like one month to three months, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, so you know, I've always suggested that. You know, you might want to start with the doses that are used, but as soon as you get a benefit, you might want to start backing off. Mm-hmm. And because we know that almost for sure, if it's worked, you probably would have had an effect with something a lower dose. Yeah. So you know, I think that's sort of the the approach to take. I I I, I don't think I would ever recommend twenty four hundred milligrams of gabapentin for this. Well, if you if you were mad at the person. <laughs> oh yeah. Just yeah, no, just 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 like you told me when there was one patient who jumped up on your desk and said, "Give me an antibiotic." So you gave them one gram of erythromycin every two hours. QID, yeah, QID. QID. No, no, QID is not enough. You got to go every two hours. No, I did not. I, do he did that. not do that. <laughs> but you would, you might, you wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't start at those doses. Oh, not at, no. oh yeah, no, no. Yeah, and if they found a little bit of an effect, and you know, it's all patient centric. So this patient, let's say you have them in front of you, they don't want hormones at all, and they, yeah, they take gabapentin. They, you know, think it's helping with their leg pain as well, etc. There's a thousand reasons why you might titrate up, but yeah. for the most part, I wouldn't be starting yeah, there. No, exactly. So a uh, great job. So what, what's the, what was the, let's put it all together in a nice little package and say, what was the bottom line? Mm-hmm. So after 12 weeks, about 50 to 75% of women who have vasomotor symptoms related to menopause will have a, at least a 50% decrease in hot flashes with SSRIs, SNRIs, or gabapentin versus 35 to 60% on placebo. And placebo reduces the number of hot flashes by about 40 to 50%, like we talked about, um, with an additional 10 to 20% reduction from, again, SSRIs, SNRIs, and gabapentin. Perfect. So uh, as with most tools of practice, uh, it's not just one person working on them. No. So we had Ashley Dominguez, who's a PharmD candidate at the University of Toronto, who was the first author on this. Emily Brashi helped us out. She's also with the college. And Adrian helped us kind of whip it into shape and gave us a lot of great advice. So unless there's anything else you want to add to this, we'll just let people know that there is a, our annual conference is coming up in Vancouver, May 24th and May 25th. Uh, We've pretty much nailed down the program. We haven't published it yet, but we're going to be opening up the gates so that people can, uh, 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 I was going to say, apply for it. We will take anyone, almost. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we'll uh, open up so that people can register, I think, sometime in the first week of February. So we'd love to uh, have you attend either live or uh, uh, on uh, some sort of a Zoom version of it. we always talk about lots of interesting stuff and I know you're going to find it hard to believe we're better looking in live than we are on the podcast. (laughs) No, we're not, but we're, uh, when our looks are at their best is during the podcast. (laughs) That is true. When we turn the cameras off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So true. So, uh, I think we'll just leave it at that. So thanks as always for listening. Talk to you later. (laughs) 